love music, live sport. Talking football with Bill Young and Hugh Burns on Rock Sport Radio. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday's Talking Football. Hugh Burns in the studio with me tonight. We're broadcasting on DAB Digital Radio online at rocksportradio.co.uk uh, via your smart speaker. That's using the TuneIn and the Radiogram apps. And of course, you can watch the programme as we stream live. That's on Facebook, Twitter and Periscope. It's a bit early to be greeting, son. Don't, don't cry. You'll be fine. I'm fine, Bill. I'm just well, what are you wiping your eye for? What's, what's a wee tear in your eye? No, I just said a wee... A wee... I don't know what it was, but it's clear and I'm good to go. A wee midgy. A wee midgy in my... Well, it's better than them, isn't it? You like them? Quality, isn't it? It's absolute quality, then. All right, listen, we've got a good show tonight. Charlie Richmond's going to be talking uh, to us about the refereeing decisions over the weekend. Not so many controversial ones, uh, but a couple of ones. And I want to talk to him as well about the interpretation as to how the new rules are being dealt with, the consistency of interpretation with the refs mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh, Hamilton Aki's manager, Brian Chipper Rice, will be talking to us yep. around about half past six, seven o'clock tonight. I'm, I'm kind of stoked to get this uh, gentleman, he's coming into the studio with us. Oh, he's coming in. Uh, yeah, John McLean is going to talk to us about this fantastic study uh, that's been done. It's the first time it's been conducted in the world. Uh, and it's done at Glasgow University. It's about dementia, uh, primarily, um, in the way that dementia seems to be more prevalent. Or, or footballers seem to be, I think it's three and a half times more likely, likely. to get dementia yes. uh, than anybody else uh, looking at this study group. John will tell us more about it and tell us about it properly. However, the good news is there are certain things that, that footballers will not be prone to uh, oh, really? compared to the general population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he'll talk about all of those. Tell us about the you know, the difference in the balls, whether the argument is, is the same today with the lighter balls as it would have been earlier on. You know, certainly back in the days when I played as a kid, and even back when you were playing, the balls were heavier than no, they are now. No, I'm not that old. No, they were heavier they would than... Have, they would have been a bit heavier, but... But that's what I just said. Can't remember heading it and going, oh... I can't remember you heading it anyway. I wasn't great in it. No, no, it's got to be... You had like a thrupney bit. I wasn't great. I was like a turtle. <laughs> the old neck went in the way. Tommy Turtle. <laughs> the, old, the old neck went in the way. I, was, I don't know why, but, you know... Because uh, you thought, I don't want dementia. No, I just, I just did It wasn't good in the air, but, you know, I, I heard it. It was... Station between ourselves and other stations I'd listened to down south predominantly. Yeah. Um, you know, the report I think it was actually the FA or the Premier League yeah, well, or both that commissioned it, but it was done at Glasgow University. Well, Jim White went on about it all morning, of course. Yeah, you know, but that's, but that's Jim you know. White. It's a repeats, it's a repeats, repeats. But uh, it did have a lot of good guests on, uh, most notably Jeff Astle's daughter. Yes, still, of course. Th- this is know, still rumbling on, of course. the question, uh, you know, who would you put the blame on completely? And She's leaving it at the, the, the door of the FA. Well, can I ask you a question? And I know this is before we get Charlie Richmond on, but I've got to ask this question. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to blame the Football Association or any football governing body, bearing in mind we all played the sport and chose to play the sport? It's like anything. OK, you don't know the damage that's been done, but, you know, there is impact there which moves your brain and your head and, and I'm sure John will tell us more about it. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't think it's so much about a blame game, more about learning how you can eliminate the opportunity for people to suffer ongoing that play football. The amount of people that have sadly passed on with, with Alzheimer's and again they were saying Absolutely. And, you know, hear John talking about you know, it could it can trigger motor neuron as well. Yep. There's a lot of stuff that can come from it. I think the FA are an easy target for people, especially in, down in England. Now, again, notably here as well, the amount of people it was documented in the paper today about uh, obviously Billy McNeil who you know suffered mm-hmm. really badly with it. Stevie Chalmers, Frank Coppell at Dundee United, and and few other people as well. Um, so. I think it's of no coincidence, Bill, that all these players probably played at the same time as well. Yeah, the equipment that we're using, as in the ball, was heavier. But um, they, these guys would have known that there and then. That w- w- you know, they, they would have known, but they still loved the game, I, Bill. I understand the tragedy of the families that have to come to terms with these horrible diseases and live through them and see their loved ones become someone that they don't recognise. Yeah. I, I sympathise and I understand that, Hugh. Yeah. The thing that I'm going to talk about, though, is, is very quickly before we get Charlie on, is that you can't isolate it and say... The, the FAR to blame or the SFAR to blame or, I'd the, agree with that. I'd or agree. the SPFL because if you're going to do that then you've got to start talking about the club's responsibility mm-hmm. as well because they were signed to a club mm-hmm. the club selected them, the club trained them, they played for the club it's one of these things where again all this retrospective blame and looking for this and looking for that it worries me where it might end and that's not to be hard about the loss that people have suffered it's not to be uncaring for what they went through it's the reality of the situation you voluntarily take up a sport well you take it you take the jeff hastel one a very very famous number nine for uh, west bromwich albion and you're right you know the equipment that west bromwich you know that, that jeff hastel was using sadly that that you gave them dementia. Well, it, again, do you, was do West you, Bromwich Albion that have purchased the equipment? Do you hold the, the ball manufacturers responsible? Well, that's where these lawyers. This is where it becomes crazy. Well, she was asked the question, "Where do you want to take this?" I think her name was Denise, and, and she says, "And who do you lie the blame at?" And she says, "For me, definitely FA." <laughs> but the more you go into it, there then, you know, there's, there's loads of people in the yeah, fire line, it's isn't a, It's a horrible scenario and it's sad and you, you just got to look at these things. But you've got to understand that it, it, we didn't have the knowledge progressively that we have today and we didn't have the, we didn't have the technology to, if you like, develop lighter balls. A lot of the time the ball was fine. Mm-hmm. It's when it got wet. wet. Yeah, you're right. You know, it, yeah. it just became like a brick. Liam Telfer, I've got to disagree with you. You don't know what you're talking about. The worst ball to header was the old mitre balls of the 90s. I remember one in 98 getting hit in the face, and that was worse than being hit in it with a brick. Listen, son, let me tell you, the ones in the 60s where they really got heavy when they got wet and had a lace across them that would split your head open if you caught it, mm-hmm. they were the worst no, the, the by mi- a long chalk. Yeah, absolutely. The mitres, I remember. The mitre mold master stung like hell when they hit you in the leg. Yeah, is that the one when you go to school? Aye. aye oh, aye. I've still got marks in my leg with that. But the, the, the mitre ball that, that Liam's probably talking about, uh, I, I don't know who Liam played for. I don't know if he played at any level whatsoever. Don't wind him up. Um, but, you know, I, I remember playing with mitres and, you know, they were actually good balls to ping about. <laughs> Charlie, how are you? Magnificent up here in cloud nine. <laughs> Charlie, how are you? You good? 
I was going to ask you. Very good, Hughie. Very good. We had Gordon Young in last night, obviously, uh, licking his wounds from uh, from the weekend. Uh, you must be over the moon. Oh, absolutely delighted. I tuned in. I listened to the show last night, uh, Bill. Um, conscious of, of to hear a, another guy's a, a valued opinion with regards to that. But yeah, um, and, and to pick up on what Youngie was saying, that's how Talbot set up against Kelty Hearts. Uh-huh. They went 4-5-1 against Kelty Hearts. And again, when the ball went up to Wilson, we had one midfield runners. And we had four chances to, to score, of which they got a warning uh, about three minutes before when the young boy Samson put a first-time ball in. But um, what was, was the goalkeeper? If you watch the highlights of our goal, it's a fantastic run, but it's a goalkeeper's ball every day of the week. It's four yards out, uh, uh, and, and that's ultimately what cost them. But yeah, we're delighted. We're in the next round. And we're bringing the bonnet. The bonnet's coming down to Auchinleck. And Bros <laughs> got in. Auchinleck didn't know that. Listen, 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 the bonnet will fit right in. Have we got the draws here? No. Oh. No, no. Oh, he'll love it. He'll probably he'll probably wangle a he'll probably wangle a sportsman's dinner the night before or something. Like, you know what I mean? And just stay over, Charlie. Him and Big Leishman or something. Like. So he'll be like, I'll only come down if I got a dinner. You know, he, he likes that. But I was kind of hoping assisted ball last night. I don't know if you heard or not. I says, have we got Charlie on the night? Wait, no, he's a morning. Uh, I do know you come on in a Tuesday, but I thought it would have been quite good. Uh-huh. But Youngie, Youngie was pretty, he was gracious in defeat. He did say that they had the majority of the ball, had a few chances, had more, more, sh- more shots. But I'll tell you one thing, again, yeah. you heard he was open when he said that he was not expecting Auchinleck to set up the way that Auchinleck set up. So Tucker does it again. Tucker does it again, you know. We couldn't have went toe-to-toe with them, Hughie. Right, go No on. way. Right. The, the quality of players that they had... Uh, and we had to, to stifle in the middle of the park. And, and as you well know, Beechwood's a wee tight park. So sure. we had to force them. We had to force them as wide as we possibly could. Mm-hmm. But they would like they would have liked a, 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 another five ten yards onto the the width With of the park to yes. go and play yeah. to, to play. But um, the, the, as, as they say, they had twenty shots, of which probably. Four was in target and right. they hit the crossbar. Right. But they had a lot of possession. They had a lot of possession. Um, and, and again, they, they, they didn't cut us open. Can you weren't they, mm-hmm. they weren't looking at it as if they say, oh, this goal's just coming, this goal's coming, this goal's coming. Mm-hmm. And, and big Andy Leishman probably made about three quality saves and the one that hit the crossbar. Charlie, um, was it similar and, to and maybe the air game it. last year where it was kind of... You know, end to end could have went any way, or you know, was it was it you know was it similar? no no we no um, we and within about the first ten fifteen minutes of the air game, mm-hmm. um, it, we Tucker realised and he went for four five one to four four two, and and we and we went and and, and we went from, but we, we couldn't have done that because. Fraser Fivey was was running the show in the middle of the park, and he was and he was looking for that killer pass through all the time. Mm-hmm. But because, as as, as Youngie says, we had four five. There was nine players behind the ball that was, they were struggling to find that actual killer pass through in the in the last Jimmy, cup. Yeah, um, to, to, to try and get a shot away or to try and create that uh, one hit inside or, or something with regards to there. So no, the the, the was a there was a clear distinction in, in Tucker's tactics against the Air United game 
against the the, the game on Saturday. He's given. And I I don't want to I don't want to let the the the, the cat out the bag, but I think we would probably set up a, similar against our growth. Yeah. I've got to be honest with you, Charlie. I, it wasn't a surprise to me. It really wasn't. I think it was. Uh, and when we spoke about it on, on Friday, uh, because we knew Youngie was going to be on on Monday, I don't think it was a surprise uh-huh. to all three of us, was it really, no, when not, we were no, talking about no, it? No, not at all. And I, think and I had Tucker on on Thursday. Uh-huh. We, we, fancy, we were quietly confident uh, in the village, and then I don't know who it was and, and, and other uh, bookmakers are available and all that, but I, I don't know who put us at 10 to 1, but... The, the price come down rather sharpish once everybody raided their were, were, uh, savings boxes and, and put the money on <laughs> were it. They ten, to, to were they 10s at the start? Because I heard Big Redmond the, saying there were 10s in places. Aye. Is that right enough? They, they, were, they, come, they come straight out of the hat uh, at 10 to 1. And it lasted, about, it lasted about three or four hours. And kick-off, at kick-off, we were... Uh, Ten to two, five and a half to one, uh, and then as it as it went on and on, I think the the worst price you could have got for for Auchinleck to win was uh, three to one. It's unbelievable. Good God, at home. But I tell you what, Tucker's gave you some days, haven't he? Tucker's done unbelievable. Oh, it's and and see the funny thing about it is, uh, Huey, the funny thing about it is, cast your mind back to two years ago, the committee were making a statement saying, be careful what you want because some of the crowd were want Tucker out. As if it's, and you're saying to yourself, the last two years has been absolutely phenomenal. This is probably, and, I, and I'm ready to get shot down, but I think this is probably one of the best Talbot teams for skill, cohesion, togetherness that we've seen for a long time. Including the Willie Knox years. Yeah, yeah, and that's why that, that's why I'm saying I'm willing to be to be shot down because wow. I, I just these boys there's no a fitter team than Talbot and and the the really? junior grade mm-hmm. there's, there's no a fit the absolute and and Tucker's Tucker's old fashioned with it with the training methods mm-hmm. you run you run you run you'll do your skill you'll do your shaping mm-hmm. uh, and there's no a team and that's why we won the. We were, we were only scared about the fitness aspect mm-hmm. of it because mm-hmm. the longer the game went on, a lot of people have said, oh, Cove will start to get the better with the fitness. We were only feared with that. Mm-hmm. We were just, as the game went on, we were starting to grow in confidence and confidence. And as I said, we had a couple of chances uh, just before we scored. But as you know, Hugh, you score in 88 minutes. Oh, no way You've back. got absolutely no chance of coming back. No way back, yeah. mate. Aye. Right, let's move on and talk about refereeing decisions over the weekend, Mr Richmond. And we'll start with Kevin Clancy's performance uh, at Tynecastle. Eight yellow cards, Charlie. Yeah, this is the modern game nowadays uh, with regards to... And people would come away from Tynecastle saying... There was hardly a bad tackle in the game, mm-hmm. but that's the way the that's the way the modern game goes now. That if you're denying a promising attack, it might only be an ankle tap, but it's a yellow card. Uh, if you're shirt pulling or you're pulling them back, it's a yellow card. There's certain things now that just carry automatic yellow cards um, for there. Is it good for the game, the game itself? No, it's it, it, it's it's no. It's no good for the game in the in the aspect that um, two missed time tackles 
and, and again, I'm, I'm conscious of my words here. Two, two missed time tackles and you're off the park. Mm-hmm. Whereas two badly timed tackles or, or uh, tackles that are going in with a bit of intent, then that merits off the park in the aspect. But with two just genuinely missed time tackles, particularly the winger against the, the left back or the right back, and he just nicks that ball in front and bang, yellow card, does it again. He's off the park. Let me ask the, you. The right back of him, there maybe have done two tackles in the whole game. Let me ask you this because Mr. Burns, many moons ago, came up with an idea which I actually find quite, quite attractive for the game. And that is if you get two yellow cards in a game, you get a 10 minute sin binning. Yeah. And, and this is what I would like to see as well. CDs take one for the team tackles. And it happened twice on Saturday. Stephen Wilson, uh, the boy broke yeah, by him. Yeah, and, yeah. And the, the boy broke by him and he just ankle taps him. Yeah. But he's, 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 he's aware that the guy is moving into acres of space. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a cynical tackle, mm-hmm. but it doesn't do any damage. Sin bin for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Pick up the yellow card and sin bin for 10 minutes. Because of the, na- the nature of it. I remember it. I think, yes. I think it was Morelis that was had the touch and, and was getting away. No, he wasn't certainly going to be through one and one. But there is times you wonder, tackles like that, you go, that could be a red. But it'll no be because where it is and what because it is. The, yeah. But the nature yeah. of it, I, yeah. I, I know where you're coming for, Charlie. Well, it used, to be called, yeah. it used to be called the professional foul, oh, which yeah. used to amuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, for the want of a better word, you could probably still use it as a <laughs> professional foul. One for the team, professional uh-huh. foul, but a sin bin offence. I actually like this sin bin thing for two yellow cards. I, Aye, really I do. think so, because a lot of people are getting shortchanged. You don't want to see ten men, you know, and, and it, it kills games. A very seldom not, not only that, sometimes you you've got to look at the second yellow card or even the first yellow card and you think, I can see why he got that one but by comparison to the first one, mm-hmm. it doesn't stack up. No, and it, and then because it leaves the referee no option yeah. the referee, if he's doing his job right and a lot of times the referee will probably feel sorry for the player he's got no option but to send them off. The problem is though, guys it breaks up the game and games don't get going and, and then people start to think the referee's making it all about the referee rather than the football and, and that's the bit that starts to rankle. Yeah. Charlie, what about Scott Arfield? Should he have had a penalty when that, in that Hearts game? No. 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 He's, he's, he's knocked the ball and he's got, he's got nowhere to go. He's just run straight into Adam Hickey. Uh, Adam Hickey can't get out the rodeo. Uh, it, it's no, it's no for Adam Hickey to get out the road of him in the, in the nicest possible way. But because of the way he's got Arfield went into him, no, uh, I know we're not comparing apples for apples here. But in basketball, that would be a free kick for the defending team because he's just been charged straight into him. Right. Let me ask you. Let me ask you another question then. And this is this is the one that we acid test these incidents with. If that had happened. Somewhere else in the park, with the referee blown for it. I would like to have said no. I would like to have said he's still got nowhere to go. It, it's it's the concept. See if I'm running at you. See you. Wait a minute, Richmond. You're backtracking because the key word is, or the key words is, I would have liked to. You you're backing off this because your answer is genuinely probably he would have blown for it. No, he wouldn't have. No, 
No. It, then why it, would you have said not... you'd have liked to have said no? That suggests that your feeling is that you should say yes. No. Well, I'm not. I, I stand corrected. Big man, you're doing a wee bit. Let's come on. I would. I would like to stand corrected in saying that the majority of the referees would say no and not give the free kick. All right. Okay. I'll go with um, that. We believe you, Susan. Because you've got, if you just run straight into him, you've got nowhere to go. It's a bit like the, the attacker going on the left back, and he's he's going in. And he's, oh, do I go to the left, do I go to the right, do I go to the left, do I go to the right? The next thing, clatter, I'm into you. I've made, I hadn't made the decision. Uh, so the defender's got nowhere to go, and it, it just works for that. Well, I think the last time that so, Clancy refereed a game in the capital was the, the one that he should have gave a penalty to Hibs for as well. It was a Hibs-Celtic game last time, I think, two or three weeks back, Charlie. Um, again, I watched... He gave two penalties that yeah, day. Yeah. That's true. I, I think I, I watched them closely, and I watched the, their body language and how they get about the park and blah, blah, blah. And for me, I've, I'm not just because Charlie's on the night and Clancy, who we're talking about, is not my favourite referee anyway. I just think there's no communication whatsoever. There's no, there's just, there's no leeway with him. There's no body language. It's just total by the book. Um, and for me, yeah. Charlie, I, yeah. I don't know if, if you've got the same opinion, whether you want to be as opinionated as I am. I just think he's rank rotten. I think he's, I think he's rotten. I don't think he, he brings anything to the game. And I, I've even heard players off the cuff as well having comments about him, saying that he, he, he's... Just no a nice person on the park. I know the referees know there to be everybody's Mr. Mr. Nice Guy, but come on, cut a wee bit of slack. Uh, he probably, in, in all fairness, uh, the decisions he made on Sunday, the only one was McGregor. You know, and McGregor obviously sparked the dummy about where the free kick should have been taking place, and, and the goalie yeah. wasn't happy about that. But again, um, I think the referee should just show a wee bit more experience, no needing to run back, uh, you know, and actually infuse the situation. I think McGregor was more angry because it, it's a, the way I remember it was he thought it was a free kick yeah, and did. Clancy told him it was a goal kick. And what is the difference, Charlie? What would the difference be in that particular? Oh, it's a free kick, not a goal kick. Oh, it's a goal kick, a free kick. There's no hearts players. The goalie's still going to be in control where he's going to play it from. Where is the issue with that, Charlie? Yeah, that's 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 the concept again. We we bringing your personality into the game mm -hmm. um, by communicating and talking. So there's no there's no any Hearts player that gives you an argument towards it. There's no difference. It's a goal kick. It's a it's a, a free kick. I'll tell you what, and I would say to the Hearts guys, tell you what. It doesn't matter where he takes it from, mm -hmm. it's gone to the same place. <laughs> well, there and, you go. and get back and defend. That's get that. back and defend yeah. because it's gone That's to the same point. place. That's yeah. a good point. And you make you make you can referee a game with your personality. And the funny thing about it is the the that time in the dressing room. Now when I was on the way out, um there was guys no want there was Scottish referees no want to get into the dressing room to check equipment and stuff like that because a professional football player is always going to have six studs and all that carry on. Mm. But my argument was that you can stamp your personality on the game well, right for that position word to go. Yeah, and that's a good point. Having a laugh and a joke and yeah. you can see you're human. Mm. And, and my, my phase was that referee the game with your personality and then when you've got no other option, your cards 
come out to to the last. This is my last scenario. This is my last. Here's the yellow card. You do that again. I've got no option but to red card you. And and that's what you want as a referee. And on Sunday, uh, Kevin Clancy, any doubt in the penalties, he would have been only given stonewall 100% penalties because his mindset from the game that what you had said the last time, Hugh, mm-hmm. about the Edinburgh uh, Hub Celtic game. Yep. And that would be in his mindset. Charlie, Motherwell, uh, penalty, was it simulation or was it genuine? What would you have given? To me, I would have played on. Um, and Ewan Anderson is caught right behind that. He, he is perpendicular to that decision. And that's where we see, uh, or you get, it's, it's the opinion of the referee from the angle he sees. See, Ewan Anderson, instead of running wide, had run inside on his right. He would have been able to see the goalkeeper and the, the, the forward, and he would have noticed that there had been no contact between them. And what amazed me was the Motherwell guy fell holding his head. So the contact was, was about the, the feet area. So why did he go down holding his head? Was there a slight contact when the Aberdeen goalkeeper brought his hands up to say, I hadn't touched him? Mm. And I looked at that freeze frame, freeze frame, and I'm saying, why are you going down holding your head? Mm-hmm. This is one of but these ones. This is one of these ones again, guys. Where you know, despite the, the, all the controversy over VAR, would it clear? It would have yeah. cleared it up fairly quickly and fairly simply. I'm just wondering now, though, going back to remember the Jordan Jones incident, whether that's one that the the compliance officer would take a look at, Charlie. Yeah, I would. I would. I would have expected them to to come in and do that because uh, there's, there's no contact. There's no contact. He's actually deceived the the referee um, from the position with regards to that. So your Jordan Jones incident and that incident on Saturday are exactly the same. So you therefore you would expect the same to come out because he's he's deceived the referee by awarding the penalty kick. Now, totally, albeit the fact that they missed the penalty kick has absolutely no way uh, to to come into consideration. But yeah. Used to be looked for that for for a concept of because the Motherwell player has played the ball anticipating the contact from the Aberdeen goalkeeper, yeah. and that contact has not come, has not came. So therefore, he's went down anticipating it, and therefore that falls into the bracket of simulation. Well, somebody that didn't manage to pull the wool over the, the referee's eyes was Jason Kerr. Uh, St Mirren, didn't, well, he actually did pull the wool over the, the, the referee's eyes. St Mirren denied a clear penalty uh, for a foul by Jason Kerr. That's a high foot. That's where he's, he's, he's kicked him. Uh, and again, uh, Don Robertson... He's got to be wider. He's got to be into the centre of the part. See that area, guys, if you can try and picture it, that area in the penalty box is what we call the dark hole because you've got the referee on the opposite side and the linesman on that side, and you've got to be across. And again, what amazes me is why was there not if he, an indirect free kick a minimum? Not awarded because mm. y- y- you can you could argue was there contact was there no contact 
that's what the referee would be going through in his mind. Was there contact? Was there no contact? If I don't think there's contact, I've got to give an indirect free kick because that's dangerous play. Yeah. The St Mun player hasn't ducked down towards the ball. Again, it, it's all quite at level height. So therefore, why was a, a, an indirect free kick not awarded? And then, because there's contact, that changes the indirect free kick to a direct free kick, which I would have expected a penalty kick to be awarded there. Uh, let's move on to one of the new rules about about handball, deliberate and accidental. Now, there was a, an incident with Deutsch uh, at the weekend yeah. with a handball goal. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, for me, it was similar to the, the Sadio Mane uh, incident, uh, Man United against Liverpool. Uh, and I'm going to give my worth here, if you don't mind, Charlie. I didn't think yeah. that the Mane handball was... I didn't think it, his hand was in an unnatural position and I didn't think it made his body bigger and it came off his kind of thigh onto his hand and I thought that was a harsh decision. You, you thought the the the, the, the money the money goal harsh. yeah the money decision I thought was was harsh because of the way the ball was played uh, and they were similar right. the Deutsch the Deutsch incident and the money yeah because incident. it's come up off his, yeah because it's come up off off his thigh onto the the the, the hand and this is where the 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 wording comes into it now because it doesn't need to be it, it's accidental and deliberate. And he benefits from it, and therefore puts the ball into the back of the net. Um, and the hibs, it comes up off. He, he goes to try and control it with his foot. Comes off his foot, up to his slight, uh, 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 touching the hand, and he benefits from that. Mm. Now we can we can quite clearly say that both incidents are probably not deliberate handballs. They're accidental handballs, but because they've benefited from it and eventually of the next phase is ball into the back of the net, that's why uh, the, the, certainly the, the Hibernian goal was correctly ruled out. Mm-hmm. Let's finally look at the uh, the coming together of Stevie Marlin and Blair Alston, or as Shuggy likes to call him, Blair Athel. <laughs> yeah, I made, a, I made a mistake of that a few years ago that Bill loves to remind me of. Yes, Blair Arthur. Can he believe I said that yet to this day? But I did. So, what about that, Charlie? Is, is, is that not a hotel up Ballowin Way? Blair Arthur. Can believe Blair Arthur. Again, again, um, Stephen Marlin's what I would call is is sleeping. And he's anticipating again um, Blair Alston taking it on his drop into his foot and he's going to make a challenge. And But, of course, he takes it on his thigh, plays it through, and it's an ankle tap. It, it's, it's what we were saying at the beginning of the, the conversation. It's an ankle tap and it, it's a, a clear penalty kick. Mm. It might not be a great lot of force, but what has he done? Oh no, panic! I'm sleeping. I've let my marker get away from me. Ankle tap. Pick you off. See if I get away with it. Unfortunately, he never got away with it. Mm. All right, mate. Good to have you on as always on a Tuesday night. Thank you for revisiting some of the uh, more questionable uh, decisions yeah. over the weekend. And uh, you can go back to your celebrations now because I know Ockin Lake will still be jumping for the weekend. Absolutely, we've all still got sore heads, and we're all going. <laughs> the, there was a few 
there was a queue worse than a, a mile long at right? the bookies were collecting their winnings. Right, yeah. to that <laughs> there. Cheers, Charlie. Just a wee quickie. Yes. Aye, fire away. Just a wee quickie. Just a wee quickie, guys. Uh, Champions League appointments tonight and tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, uh, I know I can champion them, but Bobby Madden's out to Slavia Prague versus Barcelona. So last appointment was Bayern Munich at home. He's now got Barcelona away from home. So we can see the trend happening, guys, mm-hmm. that he's doing okay and everything's going and again, his VAR officials are from Holland. But Charlie, was that was that was that? Did you not see a while back because we didn't have VAR, our boys would miss out and stuff like that. You, you'll not get it as a team of six, right? So see the Kevin Clancy's, the uh, who, who's with FIFA, Don Robertson, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 other guys, uh, or James James John Beaton. Mm-hmm. They'll no, they'll not be involved with regards to that setup. And what they would probably want, Hughie, is going into the quarter-final of a Champions League match, and I'm just taking two teams out of the sky here, Juventus versus Barcelona. You want a team of six officials from the one country. Now, I can stand corrected, I can be shot down, because if these are the same two Dutch VAR officials, if they're going to go with Bobby Madden all the way, then that might work and that concept, right, right. but you'll not see a team of six Scottish officials all at the one going or to, the, or to a major quarter-final stroke semi-final, and that's where they will, will look at it for that point. I don't think John Beaton will be too upset with that, because as long as he frees up his, his uh, Europa League next week, <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be quite happy. <laughs> and Wally Collins, uh, Wally Collins out in Europa League. <laughs> Charlie, have a good night, mate. Thanks for All talking best, to Charlie. us as always. Cheers, mate. Yeah, a pleasure as always as well, Bill and Chewie. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks, Cheers, Charlie. Thanks, Thank you. Man. Charlie Richmond, our man in black, the man in the middle, talking about uh, some of the more uh, questionable refereeing decisions over the weekend. And depending on what side of the fence you've been on for them, maybe they weren't that questionable. Uh, next guest up tonight, always a pleasure to talk to him, Brian Rice, the Hamilton Ackies manager. Brian, how are you? I'm good, Bill. I'm very good, thanks. Uh, listen, I'll make an apology straight away because normally it wouldn't be him, but Burnsy's in with me tonight. Excuse so, me. Excuse me. So, excuse me. I sorted chopper out so, today. Don't so, use any of that. So, <laughs> User don't get the clout I've got. Just come to me when you say that. I can't. I can't turn you down. Exactly, Listen, let me tell up. you something. He came in the studio when you were not here. Ah, he stayed at arm's length I'm tonight. St- I'm still the contact. But I'll tell you something, Chipper, before we go any further, you might not want to talk to me about this one. Right? When I've asked you for okay. a, brief, a brief on Saturday, I ended up, I, went, yeah. I, I didn't make it. You know where I had to go? Where? <laughs> Fur Park. To go to Fur Park, uh-huh. so a million percent apologise for annoying you on a team day, a team a, a match day, I should say. So I do apologise. I didn't make the game in Saturday. Well, I'll look in. It was a good. You point, do. Anyway. You do know the next time you ask for a brief, it'll be at Fur Park. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I just thought. We'd, no, I just thought we'd say that because if you ask me about something about the game in Saturday, I don't want to wing it and go. Aye, that was good. I've got a few things up my sleeve that I want to ask you about the Aki's in general, but no, finally, no. no no, 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 in general. You All know. right. Well, okay. Let's you know. start with the, let's start with the weekend. Uh, yes. Hibs uh, were the visitors. One-one draw. Uh, give us your overall thoughts on the game, Brian, if you would. 
Yeah, well, we had a game plan built of going press abs because I think they're a very good attacking team and I didn't want them getting the ball forward in areas that could hurt us. But to be fair play to Hibs, you know, they were good enough to play through us. But once we changed the shape at half-time a little bit and tweaked it, we got ourselves back in the game. And when we scored the goal to equalise right away before they took centre, I took our wide player off and put another striker on. And I thought to myself... I may as well go and try and get the three points here. And mm-hmm. it's one friend to end. And there wasn't a great deal of chances. I'm sure we had a couple more chances than us. But at the end of the day, I think I draw was a fair result. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're sitting eighth in the league at the minute and, and fairly comfortable there. Um, the teams round about you, Levy, St Mirren, Hearts, Hibs, St Johnson's, they're, they're, they're in Ross County even, they're the ones that you want to win. Uh, do you, are you one of these managers, Brian, that, that sets yourself a target for a quarter? Some managers do, some don't. I've tried it in the past, and I sometimes think if you don't achieve the, tra- the target, you feel let down, you know? And I sometimes feel when you, you over overachieve the target, uh, you become a wee bit complacent, so... I don't set the boys any targets in general. In my head, I know where I want to be, but I don't get too high and I don't get too low because I look at the overall picture. Where do I need to be going into the split and where do I want to be? And I try and get some place round about there. Are you reasonably happy at this point that you're where you would like to be? Well, if somebody said we were eighth after nine games and I had Hearts and Hibs, uh, St Johnston below us, I'd be very happy. But I think there's been one, one or two points that we could have thrown away. And saying that, there's been uh, three comebacks uh, to draw twice and to win once. So overall, what the boys are giving me in terms of effort and commitment and we're not getting beat sort of attitude, if we can help it, has been fantastic. I followed the Ackies for for the last two or three seasons, Brian, and watched it. But Canning yeah. had been there for for long and weary, and I've seen it. And I've got a lot of pals that go to to, to the games and being a Lanarkshire boy and I see it. And last night as well, we had we Gordon on, and I've I've genuinely said and I'm not blowing smoke at you or the job you're doing. Or, but I think you've got better personnel. I think there's a better atmosphere. I think the Ackies are playing with a, with a freer spirit than they did with Martin. They were a bit stifled at the end and a bit stale. And, and I just feel you brought a bit of your freshness to it. I, I, you know, I watched Aki's at, at Ibox, uh, you know, a couple of weeks back as well. Yeah, Either up yeah. against the Rangers, you know what I mean? But a few individual mistakes as well, a couple of goals that you could have kept out. You, you know what I mean? You know what? I take a 5 0 hiding, but, you know, it probably wasn't a 5 in it. I seen you at Sidney Park, you were frustrated because some players were just doing basic things wrong. And, and maybe the occasion kind of got to them. But uh, listen, I, I think you're sitting there in a wee, you're sitting in there in a wee pack. Um, and consider, let's not get away from the fact that Chipper, this is your first gig, you know, and you'll still be picking up things along the way. But, you know, and we're not getting any younger, but it's your first job, you know. So I, I don't think a lot of people realise that as your first well, job as a main man. Well, like you say here, you know, I'm 56 now, and as you say, it's my first gig, you know. Mm-hmm. But going back to the Rangers game there, you know, I knew it was always going to be difficult. Take away the circumstances we. This Celtic uh, drawing or getting beat or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Going to Ibrox is always difficult, you know. We know that. But I went there with a group that I think six of them had never been to Ibrox before. Mm-hmm. A very young group. Uh, and we also got a, a sloppy goal early on. But I came back to it, Hugh, and I was saying to myself, OK, this can happen. Let's get the positives of this. Mm-hmm. Because these are things in the world. 
It's to be negative about everything. Mm-hmm. Going about the goals, about sloppy passes, sloppy this. I try as best I can to take the positives out of it. Bring young Hamilton on at 17 year old with 25 minutes to go playing at Ibrox. Fantastic. Young sure. Lewis Smith. Go there, you are. Go and you go somewhere. Three and a half down, whatever it is at the time. Mm-hmm. Go and you go and show the people what you can do. Mm-hmm. And I said to them at half time, the game was probably beyond us at half time. Mm-hmm. But I said to them, look, I want you to keep showing, having the ball, keep trying to do the right things. Mm-hmm. The easiest thing in the world today is to get into your shell, kick the ball in the park and say, oh, come on, come on, attackers, Rangers. Yeah, yeah. I don't want that at any club, am I? I want them to do it right. Doesn't matter who we're playing, where we're playing, Rangers or Berwick Rangers. Mm-hmm. I want them to do the things I want them to do the way I want us to play. And that's to try and get the ball forward, try and get crosses into the box, and try and score more goals than the opponents. Mm-hmm. And I think if that comes for me and it gets transferred through to the players, then you know it's, it's all positivity. It's all positivity. If the other team scores two, and one will go and try and score three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I that's, see. I that's see. Just my, I, 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 you. Well, I, I definitely see that the, the difference in the Aki's uh, with that. And and listen, again, they're very critical there. I've sat in amongst them, and a lot of them, you know, I give them daggers when I hear them shouting. Especially even last, no, before before you arrived, the stick big canning taking. You were probably aware of that as well. And there's a few noughties in there. And I think now they're beginning just to kind of buy into what you're doing and I think you know all things considered you know he brought a few players in let a few go big boy Stubbs at the back for me he's a good player Easton's doing your turn I want to ask you something maybe a wee tiny bit controversial you don't need to ask, answer it if you don't want it but it's it's in the minds and thoughts of a lot of people we spoke about it last night that the talisman midfield player Darren McKinnon seems to be yeah. Out of, out of favour at the moment. Now, he's been there for a long time. He knows what it's like. He's, he's, a, he's a, I would say, a, a, a good player for Aki's. Um, you know, is it, is it just generally tactical that maybe we can throw it and nobody's bomb-proof at the end of the day? I just think that I brought... I came in and I made an overhaul of the squad. Mm-hmm. I had a look at the age of the squad. There quite a lot of foreigners there. And I decided that I wanted to go down. I spoke with the board not about it, about getting the average age of the group down, about getting the young kids through, because it's all right saying getting young kids through, but they've got to be good enough. To come in, yeah. It's, they've got, the, the, the most important thing is, are they good enough to play in the team? And the answer for me is yes, for, for several of them. Now, Darren McKinnon has been Mr Hamilton for as long as I can remember, the last decade. Mm-hmm. You know? And... When I came in last year, it was fantastic. I didn't know him personally. I just been up against him on a professional level, but he's been fantastic. And I sat with Darren before the season started, and we spoke. And I said, "Look, you've got to earn the right to play in my team." You know, mm-hmm. I said, "There'll be games you'll be playing. There'll be games you'll not be playing. Your age, blah 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 blah." And he just turned and says to me, "You're the gaffer. You pick a team." Mm-hmm. And that says everything about the guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he started the first few games. Then I left him out. He didn't come chat my door what's happening. Hey, why am I no playing? He just get where do we chat in the, in the training ground? And he just says, Gaff, if you pick a team, I'm 100% behind NNU day. Don't you worry about me. And it, it trains like that every day. Now, there'll be certain games that I need Darren. There'll be certain games I don't need Darren. Mm-hmm. And he understands that. He's, he's 34 now. You know, he's a fit 34. But I've also got to look at the rest of the squad and I've got to look to the future as well. So... I've also got to look after Darian. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I don't sure. want him sitting feeling that he's no party and all that. We've been old players ourselves, we feel as though we're getting put out the pasture. I don't want Darian to feel that mm-hmm. because 
he means more than that to me at the club. Brian, as a club captain and as a player that, as you say, has been such a big part of Hamilton Ackies over the last few years, how does how do you obviously Darian is is positive about it and he gives you his full backing, but then again it sends a message to other players as well. Uh, how do you keep them focused on on what you're trying to do when you make such a big call as that? Well, I think if I was a player and I seen the club captain getting left out. I would think to myself, nobody's safe. I need to be producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything everything I go on is what I see in the training ground. You know, I, I'm not one of these coaches that if somebody turns it on for me on a Saturday and doesn't do it during the week and is lazy during the week, I'm just going to automatically pick him the next Saturday. I don't mm-hmm. care who it is. Yeah. I don't care who it is because I've been there myself where I've been busting my backside in training and guys are just swanning about and getting played on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And it's no fair. Because one thing I like to think, I'm, I'm very, very fair with my players, you know, and before the season starts, we have a meeting, and I, I lay out the laws, the guidelines that I'm looking for, and they all know that Monday to Friday to me is the most important, mm-hmm. and Saturday's just showtime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know, so... Chipper, do you think you've picked that up, like, through your career, with maybe the managers that you've worked under, that you would see players, as you say, swinging about, still getting in in front of you? It's a, it's a body blow to you, isn't it? It's a body blow, but you, it all goes down to the results because some of these players that just get played because they're a Saturday player, that's great when you win. Mm-hmm. That's great when you win and the boys are picking up their bonus and the club's getting the three points, but see when you're getting beat and these boys are, are, are not producing but still playing. You know, it's very, very dis- disheartening for the rest of the squad, mm-hmm. you know, that are in getting 100% every day, day and extra. So... We do a lot, a lot of work at Hamilton mornings, afternoons, and and I don't think I've got many people like that. In fact, I don't even think I've got one like that I could single out like that. That's good. Every one of them knows when they come, you know, this is what we do, this is what we're after. Can you do that? And if some people turn and say, I can't do all that, and you just shake your hand, well, thanks for being honest, and you just move on. Nobody but <laughs> that's exactly it, you know. Can you, can you do this for me? And the answer is quite simple, yes or no. And we are move on with it, or they come in and uh, be gone with it. So be assistant manager all these seasons and working with all the you know, great managers and what have you, what, what has it been like being the main man now? What, what has it done to you? What has it done to your personal life? How, how different is it to, to Brian Rice as a, as a person who knew that you're a manager? Me personally, I don't think I'm any different. I don't think I'm any different because as soon as I walk through the doors, don't the training pitch? That's me. That's when I'm, I want to come alive. That's when you see a different me. That's when my energy and my enthusiasm, everything comes out on there. Because there's nothing like putting your boots on and being on that pitch. Mm-hmm. It's just the other stuff, the going to meetings and meeting the board and just things like that. Where I'll go with my experience with Yogi. You know, it was just like being a co co manager with Yogi, except he done all the talking and I done all the action. Not all the action. I don't mean it like that. I was on the pitch. Yeah, I was I on the it. pitch trying to, you know, get the stuff going. Yes. But he very much didn't treat me like a number two. Yogi treated me fantastically well as uh, like a co number one. But mm-hmm. he was always the boss. Yes. And we didn't even have a fight about that because it was almost like the one winner. <laughs> and what about your personal? How did your per- is your per- did your personal life change? Do you, do you get to do things? And My you personal. Get- I know. Is your personal life twenty four seven at the ground? Is that it? You know. Is that is that? I know you're like, sure. football. Evans out you about football, but what else can you do with your time? You got any time to do anything else? My only love in football is my golf. 
Mm-hmm. But football for me is 24-7-365. And oh, yeah. people say that's unhealthy <clears throat> and it's uh, you need an escape, you need this, you need that. My escape is going to football, right. believe it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's been part of my, all my life. It's, ever since I left school, it's been part of my life. Sure. And it's, I'm sitting watching the Champions League now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sitting watching the Atletico Madrid now. They won in. And it's nil nil. Nil nil. And I was uh, going to football is really my escape. It doesn't matter where it is. I'll, you know me. I'm out every night at games. I'm I'm everywhere because as soon as you, I find as soon as you stand still. You know, get caught you, out. you're dead. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep moving on. You've got to keep moving on. And I've always been told, hard work doesn't cost anything. It's true. So true. it's what you're brought up with. And uh, it's just imagined. Brian, I had George Cairns on the other week. George is always a joy to talk about because he's so enthusiastic about the academy. And the academy's always been held up as a brilliant model um, for for other academies. There was a wee time, maybe two or three seasons ago, where there seemed to be a wee bit of a dry up, a wee bit of a let up in a, uh, the production of young players that were getting into the first team. For one reason or another, you're you're introducing them back in again and they're getting their opportunity. What's the crop of youngsters like coming through at Hamilton at the minute? Well, we played a game uh, against Kilmarnock earlier in the season and I think the average age of my team was 21. And I, you know, and I played against Motherwell and I had a two 17-year-olds and a 20-year-old in my back four. So, Hamilton, everybody knows about the Hamilton Academy. No, it's... In Scotland, everybody knows about it. And to me, that was one of the big pluses about when I got offered the job. Because I'll never forget when I was at Hibs. I was a kid. And somebody took a chance and gave me a chance. So I've always thought to myself, whenever I get a chance, kids will always have a pathway if I ever get it in some place. And looking at Hamilton, that I've got five or six really good young players. And... They've got to get better and better and better. But what I can do is put a blockage at the end of the, end of the tunnel and they can't see any light. Mm-hmm. There's got to be light at that end of the tunnel so they kids can see, if, I, if I'm doing well, if I'm working hard enough, the gaffer will give me a chance here. Mm-hmm. And if I can do that here, when kids get released at other clubs, they might look and say, well, I'm, not, I'm going to go and try and see if I can get any Hamilton because I know I've got a chance here. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So to me, it's not just always about getting your own players. It's maybe, maybe young kids at 15, 16 getting released at other clubs, you know, because there is no pathway for them. And and to me, the youth has always been the future of your club. You know, it, it doesn't matter what Andy says, youth is always the future of your club, in my opinion. Well, Hamilton, we've spoke about for years, Chipper, we've had, we've had Ronnie on and had Les on and, and Alec Neal and, yeah. and them all on here and, and talking about players and Obviously, the ones that have come through and went on to greater things. But I think that's a great point you've made there, being a kid yourself and being given the chance at an early age because, you were, hey, listen, the bottom line is you were good enough to get into the Hibs team. You know, you're, you're not giving somebody a chance just because they, they're showing a wee bit of potential. You must obviously think that they've got it. But I think, I think it's I a good... I don't you at Ibrox. What, mate? Well, that's true in many ways, yes, as, as, as a young, bo- as a young boy. Aye, and, you know, there were Flecky and Durante and, and they all come through because at the end of the day they were all good enough. We were all good enough to get in the team. But I think it's great there's a freshness about that because, you know, you've seen that and, and it worked for you and you've worked with players, 
you know, right through your career, young kids being given the chance, and f- and fans love that, I know, don't they? You know, home fans love, love their kids coming in. You know what I mean? And and they'll buy into that rather than the journeyman pro coming in that you know you're just no going to get that hundred and ten percent away, and the kids will just run yeah, all day. I'll, I'll hear the I'll hear the kids all day. I'll hear the kids all day. We go out and work them in the mornings. I go out in the afternoons with them with George and Doogie, and we're out and Boozy, and we're out and we work them and we work them. And I, I, I talk to them all the time, I give them advice all the time, and they all look at me as if I'm stupid. I'll walk in, and if I see them sitting down, I'll just say, you know, we don't roll this AstroTurf pitch up and bring it in at night. <laughs> it's out there all the time. So get, get a ball and get out. Right. Get out. And, I say, and the big thing for me with kids is, I think some of them are scared to be different. Mm-hmm. I think they're scared to get a baggy boys, some of them, and go out and practice because it makes them different to the guy sitting next to them. Yeah. You know, they're scared that people are talking about, well, look at him, he's, he's away the next run or that. And I just keep saying to him, it's your career. I'll open the door for you. I'll definitely open the door for you. But you need to come through it. Yeah, you need to come through it, and you need to come through it and never go back away. And that's just how I, I try and treat the kids with a bit of respect, and I try and keep, encourage them as much as I can. Uh, and it's a brilliant atmosphere we've got at Hamilton for the kids. It's fantastic. Huey mentioned uh, Huey. Stam Stubbs. <laughs> I, I thought it was Charlie Richmond for a minute. I thought it was Charlie Richmond for a minute. He mentioned Sam Stubbs. Uh, you got a great, you know, partnership developing there with with Stubbs and Easton, Brian. You must be very impressed, impressed and happy with that. <laughs> Get your wallies in. Uh, it's yours. Huey, what are you feeding him there? I think he's got my wallies in. <laughs> uh, no, Sam Stubbs, we know where he, he... No, he's got good breeding with Alan, obviously, but I'm doing it under 23 games all the time in England, all the time, because that's my market. Right. Uh, and it's and I've watched Sam for a long time, and he's only 20, 21 year old, but it's great when you go to these under 23 games because you can hear who talks and who organises and who, who does this because the crowd's uh, sparse. And every time I went, I could hear this guy organising and organising. And he's one of the kids that wants to defend. You know, he's not one to be, oh, give me it and I'll walk out and I'll do this pass and I'll do that pass. He's wanting boys played into the box for him to attack. He's wanting people to go and tackle. It, it, you know, we've been doing it to 10 men two or three times this, this season. And I just see Sam rolling his sleeve up a wee bit extra. And I say, well, that's when you got one warrior. A wee bit more. Uh, I see you've seen the boy Ross Cunningham with an extra few years in his deal as well. How's he coming through? He's getting fat again, isn't he? Uh, young Ross. Young Ross is a... When I first came into the club, he'd an injury. And people told me he's, he's a good player, but he's always injured. He'd been at four for him and he's injured. And mm-hmm. First three, four weeks, you know, he's... Training out for a couple of weeks, training out for a couple of weeks. And eventually got to the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. And he got an operation on his ankle. And I says to him, look, it'd be dead easy for me just to say to you, son, I'm sorry, I've not seen you playing, I need to move on. But like I said, I like to be fair to the kids. And I says to him, look, what I'm going to do is, you've got to come back in the summer. And you've got to get a pre-season. And I want, and you get to be flying. And then you show me, I should be here, gaffer. Mm-hmm. That's, that's your aim. Show me that you deserve to be here. And fair play to the kid. He came back, fit as he could be. Pre-season, I was watching him, and I'm watching him in the wee games and the finishing and all that, and I'm saying, oh, he's got a wee bit about himself. Mm-hmm. So I gave him a few runs in the the challenge, uh, the League Cup, sorry, mm-hmm. and he's got to sell seven goals already. Really? So uh, He's injury-free. Uh, looks like he's loving life again. And the good thing, 
he's putting me a smile on his face. And when I see somebody putting me a smile on his face, I'm saying, I'm doing something right, but he's doing something right. So I'm delighted for the kid. Bra- Brian, sorry, final question. Sorry, you got no, another d- question. No, no just, just I'm, I'm feeling it with, with Chipper that, you know, he's been in dressing rooms, he's a character he's here. We've all played with characters, we all know one another, but I feel Chipper's bringing a wee bit of that into the dressing room and the boys are no... There's no fear to talk to him. I get that impression that, you know, they'll be looking at him but you know, and he'll like a laugh as well, but he'll be able to come down. Brian, I'm so not I, being funny, but I, I, I go back to, to managers and, and you're a manager that played under a real old school manager. And for me, there are managers and there are players' managers. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, you're yeah. a players' manager. Players relate to you that, yeah. because you know... Well, I think... Sorry, go on. Maybe Bill, that goes back. Maybe that goes back to the, my apprenticeship. My twenty-two year apprenticeship was a number two, mm-hmm. where I was always in amongst the players. Yeah, you know where I, I had it was daily me and amongst them, me on the training pitch, me in the dressing room, me the one giving them stick, me the one that come to with their problems. So I like to think I'm an approachable fella, you know, uh, and I'll. Because I've got such a young squad, they need to be brought out of their shell. And yeah. I think with all my experience working with the kids before and all that, I know how to do that. You know, again, I have a bit of a laugh nap with them. Again, I know when it's time to, you know, be serious with them. Uh, I don't go off my head or anything at the kids because I think the days have gone. I can remember when I was a kid at Hibs, you know, some of the managers there, some of the things that they said to us and shouted at us. Uh, and it scared, it scared a lot of people. And mm. I just think that. When you're scared, you're never going to get the best out of anybody. Yeah, we spoke about so, that last night. I, 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 young age spoke about that. Even I don't mean it even, but you know, at second yeah. division level, and and as an oh, old no. pro, there was need to go to any more tight than I did nine times out of ten half all the gaffers. Yeah. Um, but you took it, and that was the way we took it. So again, uh, you know, I, I, I hold my you know my head up and say, well done, everybody that's played at our time and has to adjust to. To the present day, you know, management skills, it must be hard, Chipper. Oh, you're 100%. You know, there's times you're standing there saying, see if I'd have done that, mm-hmm. I would have got this done to me, I'd have got that done to me. Right. But you've got to find a different way to do yeah. it because mm-hmm. <clears throat> I keep saying the youth of today are nowhere near as. No, they couldn't handle what we had. Streetwise. You, see now, mm-hmm. I, I, school teachers can't shout at you. Mm-hmm. The mum and dad can't shout at you. I know. Kids aren't used to people telling them off. They get asked to do things now. Hey, would you like to do the dishes? Whereas we get told you're doing the dishes. Aye, that's true. You know, hundred percent. And I just think, and I just think kids aren't used to, it, and it's not their fault. It's just society. They're not get used to get, getting told to do things. They're used to get asked to do things. Let me ask and you. I think, I think it's a major problem. Let me ask you a final question because I'd like <laughs> your take on it. Youngie last night when he was in said he felt this year's Premier League was weaker. Uh, than it has been previously? I think the, the top two teams are as, they're as far apart for the rest the other ten as I can ever remember. Mm-hmm. I always felt when Celtic Rangers got, I'm going back to the 80s and 90s there was always an Aberdeen there was always a Dundee United uh, there was always a, perhaps at certain spells but I think the gap now between the two teams when they're at their best is massive in the rest of the club, the other clubs now. I, I just can't remember two teams being so far away for the rest of the league, and I think that's how it'll end up at the end of the season. St Johnson on Saturday. Um, 
it's a good or a bad time to get them, depending on how they kind of respond to what Tommy's been saying over the last uh, couple of days. Yeah, listen, I think everybody's surprised at the position St. Johnson found herself in. But I've had my meetings with the boys today and I've told them the perils of going to Perth and, Perth and Saturday because not that long ago, that was us. We were there, you know, and I'm saying, how did we feel when we were there? And Darren McKinnon and I said, we need to get our first win, we'll do anything to get that first win, blah, blah, blah. So we know what we're going to be up against. Mm-hmm. But I know who I'm taking there. I know who I'm taking up in that bus there. Uh, and I wouldn't swap them. Well, you're unbeaten against St. Johnson since Yeah, two out of two. Two out of two. And I've took two of their players as well, Easton and Olsen. So <laughs> we've done all right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Listen, Brian, thanks for coming on <laughs> Cheers, with us. I uh, appreciate it greatly and good luck for the rest of the season. Cheers, you. Don't ask me for a brief again, OK, okay so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. A different class. Okay, well, Thanks, Thanks, bye-bye. Cheers, there you go. Brian Rice, the Hamilton manager, with us tonight, <laughs> uh, talking about their season so far and looking ahead to the weekend Freshness well. about them, Brian, uh, isn't there, Bill? You know, uh, you and know, there is certainly a difference in the Hamilton step now. Chipper, is, as much as they are, you know, it's like talking to Chipper and the Boozer, having a chat there, you there, know, there, there is, or a there beer. Is, and, and there is a difference to that. You can start to see the differences made but now. That be, but... Knowing Chipper, I can see Chipper getting into dressing room with the young boys and having a bit of banter. Mm. And but being able to say, hey, wait a minute, that's uh, and, and go back out and come in and need to be hard if yeah. he can if he wants to be. Yeah. But I think another great point as well, being the assistant manager for all those years, Bill, being in there with the, the, the players, knowing what they're looking for. But now he's a gaffer and the buck stops with him. It does. Uh, that's uh, time to take a break. We'll come back and I'm looking forward to talking to our next guest as well about a particular study that's happened. Um, and it's really very, very interesting. That's up next. Let's Hear It For The Girls looks at every issue affecting Scottish women in Scottish sport, from the participation to the administration. Maureen McGonagall leaves no stone unturned on all the issues affecting women's sport in Scotland, focusing on Sport from a woman's perspective, let's hear it for the girls salutes the stars of tomorrow and the legends of today. Catch Maureen every Tuesday evening at 8pm, only on Rock Sport Radio. Love music, live sport. Do you hear that? That's your family coming round to your new house for Sunday lunch. Your son opening the door of his first home. Visitors arriving at your guest house. Friends coming over to watch the football. Scottish Building Society offer a range of mortgages, so we can turn this into this. Scottish Building Society. We've been helping people open doors since 1848. Call us today on 0345 600 4085. Scottish Building Society is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. William, Pamela and Anthony were sold investments by banks and ended up losing money. Luckily, they contacted Goodwin Barrett and were able to claim back a total of £65,500. If you've lost money on an investment sold by a bank or financial advisor, even if you no longer have the investment or the paperwork, Goodwin Barrett could help. Discover how much you could be owed. Text GOOD to 6677. Text GOOD to 6677 now. It's easy to put things off. I'll sort it tomorrow. It'll wait. Well, turns out if you're a man with prostate disease, the sooner you spot it, the better it can often be treated. So if your dad or brother have had prostate cancer or you're having trouble with your waterworks, do something about it. 
See your GP or visit prostatescotland.org.uk for more information. Prostate Scotland. Pull your finger out. Love music. Live sport. Talking football with Bill Young and Hugh Burns on Rock Sport Radio. Uh, welcome back to Talking Football for this uh, Tuesday night. Hugh Burns in with me. Uh, I'm very, very pleased to welcome uh, John McLean into the studio with us tonight. Uh, and you'll find out why I'm pleased, because you know sometimes on the programme we like to dig behind things a wee bit. John, before, before anything, uh, we have spoken before, and I think it was to do with concussion or something like that previously. Let me first of all let you reel off all the various positions that you hold rather than me do it, just to kind of set the scene before we go into the the meat of this whole thing. Okay, no problem. Uh, Lovely to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation. We we had spoken before, but first time in the the studio, so delighted to be here. I'm basically a sports medicine doctor. I've been involved in football going back for 36 years, unfortunately. It makes me seem very old. (laughs) You don't look Uh, very old. (laughs) I look after the SFA. A-team, so I've been the A-team doctor since Euro 96, old enough to have been at European Championships and World Cups in 98 with Scotland, so desperately hoping for another Euro or a World Cup before I finally retire. Uh, I work at Hamden Sports Clinic, so we've got a clinic within within the stadium. It's open to everyone. It runs as a charitable trust and the three universities in Glasgow and the SFA are the overseers for that. But uh, we look after everyone, physio, podiatry, sports massage, sports medicine. We've got a nice gym, hydro pool. And you're also involved with UEFA as well, aren't you? A level with them. So a couple of years ago, I got elected onto UEFA's medical committee. Uh, As you know, with the the structure of UEFA and FIFA, they have various committees, financial refereeing. So they've got a medical committee. And at the moment, I'm the vice chairman of UEFA's medical committee. So it fits in nicely with what we're talking about tonight. Fits in with what we were talking about before with concussion. And you were just having a nice wee walk down memory lane with Mr Burns there as well. Yeah, I, I looked after Hugh a long time ago, 30 years, 30 years plus. I think he was about 10 at the time. What have you done to me? <laughs> Apart from his Just, hair, just looking at him now, I don't, I don't know that you looked after him that well, looking at him now. Well, that was good, because I thought it was maybe that soonest it brought John in, but he says it was Big Jock, so, uh, which would obviously have been, I don't know how the interview that how that interview went when he spoke to the big fella, but... He's, he's just reeled off so many players and it, t- it kind of takes you back, but where do the years go to me? It's no, absolutely. Jock was great with me, um, I must admit. It was, a, it was a very short interview. I'd been recommended by somebody and he was looking for somebody and it was a, one of these short interviews. But he was great because although I was really with the reserve team, Donald Cruikshank was a doc at the time right, of the first yes, team. Right, that's right. But Jock invited me in on the Saturday and it was the old days. I loved these days where the first team played at home against the Hearts at Ibrox and the reserve team at Tiny Castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, same, obviously, for all the clubs so it was great he invited me in for luncheon before and, and as I was young at the time I was in my early 20s and, and, and steeped in football my, my brother Graham played professional football uh, Hamilton Queen of the South Morton that sort of level so I was used from a very young age to going and being involved in football and being in the, 
the ground addressing room at the end of the game as you were yeah. as, a, as a wee boy and a, and a teenager so I, I kind of got the bug and the big thing for me is I met a guy called Stuart Hillis who sadly passed away a few years ago who was my predecessor in pretty much everything I, I've got now and he was my mentor in life and uh, he tells me on day one I said to him I hear you're the Scotland doctor I want your job which is not factually correct <laughs> but he didn't really it's not far off he's not, not far, far off, off. <laughs> and lo and behold yeah, yeah, funny how things go right <laughs> let's talk about this study because yeah. it's it's one that's been kind of if you like in the making for quite a while because of the amount of controversy and the amount of conversation there's been over, you know, should kids at a certain age be allowed to head a ball? Has a heading a ball been detrimental to, to professionals over the years? And we'll talk about the technology and how it's changed in just a moment, but if you could just frame the study in itself, how it came about, who commissioned it, what it looked at, uh, and what the conclusions were. No, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, I think we've all been aware and quite rightly concerned about the number of professional footballers that have developed dementia. Now, dementia is a common disease, but the numbers of people and the publicity around, starting from Jeff Astle and through our own Billy McNeil, uh, Frank Capel, etc. Can I stop you and just yeah. ask you a, qu a quick question? Because there are different types of dementia. Is there one? Is it discriminatory when it comes to footballers? No, it's interesting because what we looked at at the study, without getting too technical, is what we call neurodegenerative disease. So that's all of these diseases that cause the brain to function less well, to degenerate over time. So that includes dementia, and for example, Alzheimer's is mm -hmm. the best known type of dementia, but it also includes motor neuron disease, and again, there's been publicity since the, the tragic death of, of Fernando Rickson, and things like Parkinson's disease. So in the study, we looked at all of these neurodegenerative diseases and we've broken it down into these subcategories as well so I think everyone was aware of the fact that there has been a suggestion uh, and an understandable concern about the role that, that football would have all the interest around the film concussion and, and what was happening in the States yeah. where head injury was was put down as the reason why these, these people were getting uh, neurodegenerative disease. So what happened was, in fact, it was the FA, the English FA and the PFA in England that three years ago put out a research proposal, the normal way that they would do that, and a number of groups, including our group at Glasgow University, uh, put in their perspective, said how we would do the study, and we were fortunate enough to, to win that and, and get going. So what we did was, it's a retrospective study, so we're looking at medical records, and we're looking at records dating back from the beginning of the last century, so 1900 through to 1976. So the man on my left who was born... 65? 65, will be in the study almost certainly. Now, we don't know that for sure because it's an anonymised study, so we don't know any names the information we got was from a database of, of players. And what we could what we did was we took these that group of players, almost eight thousand of them in the database, and the Scottish health records are fantastic. And that allows us to match each of these individuals with three individuals born on the same day. So whose date of birth the Scottish Government health records will flag up three others born on the same day as Hugh, for example. Uh, they're matched for age, obviously, for sex and for social deprivation, so as good a mix as we can. Mm -hmm. And what we then did is we interrogated these records and we looked at cause of death. And what we found was that overall for these neurodegenerative disease, 
you were three and a half times more likely to die of that disease compared to the match control. For Alzheimer's, it was five times, for motor neurone disease four times, and Parkinson's twice. The good part of our study, the good news of our study, is that you were less likely to die of heart disease and some cancers, particularly lung cancer. So it re-emphasised the positive benefits of physical activity for general health. And the other wee thing we know about dementia is that if, if you say to me just now, how can I reduce my risk of dementia, then the things we would advocate would be healthy living, so not smoking, minimal alcohol, healthy diet and physical activity. So not only did we show in the study that it's a benefit of being a footballer for all these the positive benefits to your health, as well as the negative side for these for these diseases. Can I ask a, a question which is a natural one, I think, but but again, it's one maybe that doesn't figure in this. I mean, is, is dementia, is it congenital? I mean, is it, is it hereditary? Can, can it run in families? There is a, a small... Dementia, as you mentioned earlier, is, is a group of different diseases with the same kind of common path, for want of a, a better extent. The vast majority of these are, are not hereditary. Right. You know, it is a common disease. So, so there, there, is, there isn't a factoring in in any study whether... Because obviously you're taking random and you say random kind of samples of people there's not a factoring in of anyone that's got a history of dementia within their family or that? No, it's done purely on those individuals that we've had. Uh, and although it wasn't uh, highlighted in the study, we did look at other factors such as lifestyle factors as well because one of the other things people would say, well, was it because the footballers all drank more than the general population? So it doesn't look like that. It yeah. looks as if... It's head impact, and we can develop what that might be if you want, but it looks like it's head impact that is the most likely cause. But the study wasn't designed to find out the cause. It was designed to find out if there was a relationship. And I know people will say, well, we've known that anecdotally, but with respect, the difference between knowing it anecdotally and having the hard science to prove it, we're in a position now to do it. Are we in a situation, John, where now it should be scaled up to the next stage, where you then start to find out what the cause was? Absolutely. I think what, what world football has to do, this isn't a Scottish problem, this is a football issue. Yeah. So I think what we need to do in, in Scotland, our role in that will be part of looking at scientists around the world and looking at world football to take on the next stage for that. But I think what's really important is, with all due respect, it's taken a long time to get to the stage of doing this study. It's taken us three years to find the results. What we can't do is we can't wait for another period of years. What we've got to do is think about, right, although we don't exactly know the cause, we can we can have a, an educated look and say, well, if it's head impact, does that mean that it's head injury and concussion or does it mean it's heading? And, you know, looking at the press today, that's the debate that's out there. And the answer from the study is we don't know that. Right. Just before I bring Hugh in, let me, let me ask you this question. Um, are we starting to get to a point where, because we recognise and we're more careful with players, are we getting to a point now where we can eliminate through maybe science in terms of the technology with new balls and things like that and the way that we treat head impact and assess head impact, are we getting to a point where we can be less worried about footballers heading a ball um, or have we still got the same degree of vulnerability in them because it doesn't stop the impact, 
it's still there, but it might be to a lesser degree in terms of, again, the technology and the way that balls are developed now. Uh, but there are still opportunities there. So are we getting to that point where we can eliminate, to a certain degree, the worry of being a footballer and suffering from dementia in later life through all of these issues? I think the only way to know that for sure is to repeat the study in 10 or 20 or 40 years time and hopefully in that time that number will have come down but I think you're right, I think football has changed over the years I mean you will have had head injuries in the past and perhaps in his early years with no disrespect they may not have been as well managed as they are just now so from a from a point of view of, of concussion, from a point of view on field management there's no doubt we're, we're better at that just now uh, I mean, it, it, I can I can talk you through some of these things if you want. Well, let me just bring Hugh in. I would like you to talk us through, but I'm going to bring Hugh in now because I'm going to ask you a very simple question. And that is, as you read about these studies and you read about the conclusions of these studies, but you read about former footballers suffering from dementia, from motor neurons disease and other things, as an ex-player now, do you ever sit back and think to yourself in one of those quiet moments mm-hmm. where... Could that be me? Will that be me? Um, you know, do you ever even start to feel that there may be symptoms of of these things, actual or imaginary? Well, it's fascinating what Stuart has done in the study of it, and I think uh, the Alan Shearer program as well. Maybe just a season and a bit ago, wasn't it? It was it was incredible how 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 deep they, they dug into it, and and it's just of no coincidence that. It's meant so many well-known footballers as well. And I heard Jeff Astle's sister today talking to Jim White, talking about it. And she has she is inundated with people contacting her, with people that played, maybe not necessarily at a professional level, but that all these people, all these families are all coming towards now, the women Astle, to say that the, all these people are all suffering from dementia in one way or another, uh, who all played football. Um, am I worried about it? Yeah, I am, and I think the more we hear about it, the more we can uh, we can read into it and and can understand. Um, I, I remember, you know, we talk about the the weight and the balls and what have you, and you can go back even just before me <laughs> and different things. But you know, uh, you think of the, the, the big centre halves of years going by, and it was boom all day, and it was boom, and it was boom, and and of of course, and I'm not just talking about match days; I'm talking about training. I'm talking about training. But I remember training you know I mean? I, when I, remember, I was younger. I remember, you know, being in the, in the training ground at the Albion over across the road there, and and, and and Big Davy Proven, God bless him, was in charge of all the youths, and Big Davy struck the ball really well. And, you know, Big Davy would play the ball as if in a match situation, so there's nobody about you, and you're just running on to this thing to constantly head it. And that was maybe an afternoon session of training, and, and you were yeah. concentrating purely on heading, nothing else. So you would you think now... Well, did, has that done me any any damage? I'm not talking about anything detrimental to, to what was going on, on on a coaching basis, but it was acceptable at the time, but long term, and I wasn't the only one, and I wasn't that great in there as I talk about it, but these guys, but the, the Alan Shearer thing for me was, was mind-blowing as... As what John just told us just now, there's a, there's there's loads and loads and loads still still to come out. Yeah, I think, Bill. John, let me ask you this question: Are you surprised that Alzheimer's kicks in relatively late for ex-footballers when they get it? By comparison to, if you look at the cumulative effect, bearing in mind these guys were picked up as schoolboys and had played football from a younger age, the cumulative effect 
ongoing at a time where the technology wasn't there to, if you like, minimise the damage. Are you surprised that there are not more footballers? The percentage that we hear about seems to be relatively low, and correct me if I'm wrong, and they seem to get, for want of a better word, away with it for a reasonable period of time, whereas you'd have thought cumulatively over that time it may have been more prevalent and, and, and shown up at a younger age. Well, one of the things the study does show, just as you've mentioned, that there wasn't an age differential between those that were professional footballers and those that weren't. So if there is a reassurance, then the players aren't getting dementia at an earlier age. It's at the same age as the rest of the population with dementia. To pick up a new point and use, I think, I think you're right. Football has changed over that period of time. So the game itself, I think, has changed. I think there's less uh, balls in the air than there would have been before. And perhaps we can talk about heading in young players later or two. I think head injury management is better. I think now, you know, elbows to the head and collisions that would have taken place 10 or 20 or 30 years ago are, are penalised now and there's a lot less of them because people know it's going to be a foul mm-hmm. or potentially a red card. I think heading and training has changed over the years. You know, I, I've seen pictures, I'm old enough to remember it, but of players heading medicine balls back, doing sit-ups and been throwing a medicine ball. These things have, have long since gone from, from football. The heading training that Hugh describes doesn't really happen to anywhere near the same extent. So your question is, can we expect the, the numbers to be better over a period of time? If you look at it from that, it's still a bit anecdotal rather than science. You would hope that as training has changed, as head collisions have changed, as management has got better, then you would hope that that would diminish over a period of time. Right, going back to this business about the good news where it's it's not age discriminatory in terms of happening earlier, yep. is, that, is that then a questionable piece of data? Because you would have thought that it would have kicked in earlier. What is the explanation for it not kicking in earlier? Bearing in mind that the people that are being compared to footballers, you assume have had nowhere near the constant impact uh, that they've had to suffer. But we're assuming that head impact is the cause in, in footballers. Now, that would be recurrent episodes of head impact. So that's cumulative damage over a period of time. Now, we all know of people that have had head injuries and road traffic accidents and are really in a very bad way functionally and their brain recovers magnificently. So the brain is a magnificent organ of of being able to recover. Eventually, that cumulative effect will cause uh, cause these symptoms and cause that disease uh, after a period of time. So I don't think we'd necessarily expect it to have come earlier because it is still a disease that takes a long period of time to, to manifest, largely because the body's ability to repair is, is really very good. Right, I was listening to... <laughs> this is the kind of life I've got. I was listening to a, a programme on Radio 4, which I listen to all the time, and it was about dementia. And it mentions uh, things called amyloids, which I believe are protein strands which start to kind of strangle and suffocate certain organs. Um are they prevalent in all forms of dementia and are they, if you like, instigated or agitated by impact? No, amyloid is a specific protein that's related to a specific subcategory of that in the same way we get amyloid disease and other organs. Right, so it's not related? No. Okay. There is a specific 
type you repaired of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now that's a post-mortem diagnosis. It sounds a bit gruesome, but that can only be diagnosed on looking at a tissue sample of someone who's passed away. So we don't diagnose that pre-mortem, it's only post-mortem. So up until that stage. And patients, I know it's a bit gruesome to talk about post-mortems, but patients who die from dementia can have more than one brain pathology at the same time. So they can die of, say, a vascular type of dementia, mm -hmm. but they might have evidence of the CTE at the same time. So it's not a, it's not an absolutely cut-and-dried picture. Something we remember move on to, we, I've been reading today about Big Sutton and his concern about his dad and what have you, and saying the headlines and record with football chiefs have blood on their hands, and it's pretty severe, but, you know, it digs deep. Uh, and he's certainly an advocate of, of, of the kids at an early age, John, no, no being able to get involved in, in heading the ball. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. So I think the, the picture with heading is that at the moment there is no science that says that heading per se is the cause of this problem. But as I alluded to earlier, we, we do reckon it's head impact. So when the US banned heading uh, at, at age groups, the US banned that based on a feeling and based on not science. Right. So therefore... Perhaps, you know, you might expect that there was legal reasons why perhaps they, they may have, have taken that move as, as well. So at the moment, the science is not there to say that heading per se is the cause and therefore banning heading would be the right move. What I think is important, as I mentioned earlier, we can't wait for the years until the study tells us what that answer is. So our suggestion would be moving forward is that particularly in young players, we try and reduce what people call this heading burden. So, for example, we ensure that they play with age-appropriate balls. So yeah. size 3, size 4, progression to size 5. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that the pressure in the ball is at the lower end of, of the spectrum. Now, people have been talking about heading with sponge balls and balloons. But, in fact, the, the suggestion is that heading a proper football with a lower pressure is actually better. Better. The third thing would be limiting the amount of heading in training for young players. So there is very little heading goes on in training in young players at the moment, but perhaps limiting that to no more than in one session. We're doing a study at the moment in, in the clinic at Hamden. It's called Header, funnily enough. And what we're looking at is the amount of heading that takes place in under 10s, 12s, 14s and 16s across all 55 countries in Europe. So some of our colleagues have done video analysis looking at the number of heading in training and matches. Our side of it was to ask coaches what their numbers, what their expectation, what they felt, their gut feeling was that, that players headed. And the numbers are relatively small, particularly in the under-10s and the under-12s groups, that they don't head the ball that much. There have been rule changes in, in youth football. It's small-sided games. The ball is played much more in the ground. It's much less in the head. So our recommendations, looking towards, so it would be ball size, it would be ball weight, it would be ball pressure. It would be limiting heading training to no more than one session in a week. It would be recognising that any player that, that had any symptoms, headache, and, uh, dizziness, etc., would be taken out. And also looking at neck strengthening. One of the arguments perhaps against banning heading in young players is that you will then start heading at whatever age, 14, 16. So if you come to heading new to that point, you've not developed the physicality that gives you some protection to your brain. So one of the reasons behind looking at neck strengthening is to build that muscle strength gradually up so by the time you begin to head the ball more often, 
you have that ability to absorb that force better than you would otherwise. John, let me ask you about something that you, you obviously hit the news about today, and that's that's talking about the situation of temporary substitutions for head injury assessment and such like. That Pretty much the way it works in rugby. How likely do you think that could be adopted? So within Scotland, we have uh, we have believed in that for a period of time. One of the advantages of me being involved with UEFA's medical committee is that myself and colleagues have been speaking about this over the last couple of meetings, over the last uh, year or so. Uh, and a few weeks ago, the UEFA medical committee uh, got permission from UEFA executive to write to FIFA to request uh, head injury substitutions in the way they described. And the good news... For me personally, I'm a massive supporter of it, is that that's going to be discussed at IFAB, which make the laws of the game. Yeah. So in order to do that, you have to change the laws of the game. So there is a process, but at least we're a good way down that process now that it's now on the agenda of the group that make these changes to the law. And if I were an optimist as I was, I would hope that within whatever short period of time that that would come into football. You'll remember we went, we added in a three-minute assessment a few years ago, mm -hmm. and that was really to give the doc and the physio a bit of an opportunity on the, pish, on the pitch without the referee, with all due respect, trying to get the player off. It gave us three minutes. I think the feeling is three minutes is not enough. And the second part of it is you can take the player off, you can take them into the dressing room, me, or we're fortunate in Scotland, my colleague Johnny Gordon, who's an A&E consultant and an expert in concussion, he would take the player into the dressing room and we would do the assessment in the quiet of the dressing room and a substitute put on. Because the thing that would annoy me most is you're playing in a game as a result of foul play from the other side, your player gets a cut or gets a head injury, your team goes down to 10 men and the team that has caused that incident is still playing with the 11 men. Mm -hmm. So it seems, A, for fairness, but B, from my point of view, much more importantly, medically, let's give us that period of time. And it works really well in rugby. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you're a great advocate of adopting certain things from rugby, certainly with VAR, yeah, the I way just, they do uh, it. Yeah. And the sin bin thing, I mean, Hugh thinks that for two yellow cards, you should get a 10-minute sin bin. Uh, what's your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think, you know, the team that are punished are the, obviously are the team that the players going off to get be, being assessed. And, yeah, I think there will be things that there will be have moved ahead of us and a few things that we could could have copied them on, especially the VAR thing. Just now, that's another story. Um, but uh, certainly, a player coming on as a as a a replacement, you know, temporary replacement. Um, the only thing is, if the boy's off and the temporary replacement comes on, is doing okay, scores a goal. What happens? <laughs> what happens there, John? The manager does says, he, "Tell me he's got a concussion." Tell me he's no coming on. So how, how does that work? How do you get an answer for that? Yeah, I think the answer is the same as the the thing we always feared about blood substitutions that people would then create an artificial head injury to to bleed. <laughs> and obviously, in, in rugby, we had the famous bloodgate incident yeah, yeah, where the guy yeah. chewed the blood capsule. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of tarred that brush a wee bit because it made out that everyone in, in sport was going to cheat in order to do that. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, we have to take people in good faith and we have to take the medical team's decision that would say, no, he or she can't come back on, or yes, they can. But it allows them to take the time to make that decision. I'll tell you another thing that's interesting, and you spoke about VAR and you spoke about things from rugby. Up until recently, you weren't allowed to have any technology in the technical area. So now what happens is, and I'll give you a good example, we, we played Russia a couple of weeks ago and Oli Burke had a, uh, an injury and it was quite difficult from the technical area to see what the nature of that injury was and he went down in a bit of a heap 
And as Tim the physio and myself went on to the pitch, my colleague Johnny Gordon was looking at his iPad, rewinded the game and was able to radio to us on the pitch to say that there wasn't a head injury. So that use of technology, which before was shunned because the feeling was that coaches would use it to complain to the referee that the goal was offside or whatever, that's another step forward in football, adopting things that rugby use in order to try and improve the welfare uh, for that for that individual. Talk us through an assessment for, for someone with a head injury. What would you be looking at? What would you do? What are the stages that you, that you, you follow? So the first thing to say is that anyone that's had a significant injury, anyone where there's any suspicion of concussion, should be removed from the field and shouldn't be allowed back on. The second thing is that only about 10% of people with concussion lose consciousness. So again, there's a feeling that if you don't lose consciousness, if you're not knocked out, you've not had a significant head injury and nothing can be further from the truth. So what you're doing is you're making an assessment and there's a thing called SCAT, Standardised Concussion Assessment Tool. It's been validated and standardised by experts far cleverer than me and that's used as the basis for the assessment. And the assessment is based on things like memory recall, it's based on uh, balance assessment. It's based on being able to do one or two simple tests. So in your three minutes, you've not really got much of a time to do that assessment, hence the reason for the 10 minutes. But there's a series of simple questions, and, and you know we can, we can joke about how well players would be able to, to know the answer. But questions sort of like, who are we playing today? Who did we play last week? What's the score in the game? Is it the first half or the second half in the game? These are called Maddox questions. And they're developed from North America, from ice hockey and, and American football. And they're really pretty good at giving you an impression as to how responsive that player is. Now, Hugh played with a lot of players that might not have known these answers to the question without <laughs> concussion. And I'm, I'm trying not to be flippant. <laughs> but the beauty of that scat testing is that you do what's called a baseline scat. So you do it before the season starts. You do it at pre-season training. You've got the numbers and you know how that player responds and therefore mm -hmm. you do it. You ask them simple questions like to do the months of the year backwards. or so you give them four numbers, two, seven, five, four, and you get them to repeat them backwards. Four, five, seven, two, and what you find is that players, when they're concussed, will say, uh, "Who is it we're playing? Uh, who are we playing today? Are we playing uh, that type of way?" Where you realise that they're they're not mm -hmm. picking up what you're saying. Their brain is not able to process that information. And one of the last things we we do is balance. It's a wee bit like the American walking the line for sobriety test. test. It's that thing. So you would balance on two feet. Eyes open, eyes closed, you balance on one. Eyes open, eyes closed, you balance with your, your knee flexed. So these tests are pretty standard and they can be done in 10 minutes. And that's that's sufficient time, I think, to be able to make enough of assessment. To Put a lot of pressure on, you know, the physio and, the, you know, to have it right and let the player back on. You know, if a player goes back on, and, and we've seen that before, player goes back on, the first person they're coming to is, a, you know, is a doc, isn't it? You know, and, and the staff who... Are, are there to do their job and it's very difficult because a lot of players will still want to go back on and there'll be a thin line, John, eh? There is, but see doing it in 10 minutes you compared to 3 minutes compared to the old days when yes. you 30 seconds, it's yeah. much better. It's done in a quiet area too, mm. so it's a much more sensible approach. You, can I take up on your point about pressure on the physio? We're really proud in Scotland because two or three things we've done in the, in the last few years really put us at the, the forefront of management of concussion. Uh, the first thing is that Scotland were the first country in the world to put in place 
guidelines for concussion management in grassroots across all sports. So Scottish FA, Scottish Rugby, Sports Scotland, Scottish Government, 2016, first set of guidelines in the world. And what that says is here are the symptoms, here are the simple tests, and here is the time period that we suggest before you return to play. Now, you might be surprised that an 18-year-old who has a concussion shouldn't return to play sport for 23 days. That's a period of rest for 14 days and a graduated return, starting off return to school or return to work, return to normal daily activity, return to walking, jogging, then training, then match training, uh, then, then normal training, then contact training, then a match. So, first in the world. Second thing is that, again, my colleague I mentioned, Johnny Gordon, put together an advanced pitch care course, and this is designed for doctors and physios. It's incorporated in club licensing in Scotland, so to get the top level of licence, your doc and your physio have to have this. It's a two-day intensive course looking at things like cardiac arrest, leg fractures, spinal injuries, and a big chunk of that's concussion. And the thing we're really proud of is that UEFA has adopted our course, the Scottish course, and we now teach that to every one of the 55 national associations in UEFA to their doctors. And the third thing is that in the clinic in Hamden, we run a national sports first aid course. Again, it's embedded in club licensing. So every single game in Scotland that's part of a club that's licensed has to have a person at the side of the pitch who's a sports first aid qualification. With no disrespect, not a first aid, but a specific sports first aid. So that might be the coach at Dundee United under 14s, or it might be a parent at the side of a pitch. How have we become so good at this, John? Because going back, obviously, we, we invented a, a scale where we could measure people's response and consciousness with the Glasgow Coma Scale, uh, which you hear on medical programmes all over the place when they say GCS and they give a number. Uh, how have we become so good at this? Sad news is that we have a significantly higher injury of head injuries. Now, these are not sporting-related head injuries, although they may be, but I'm afraid... Some <laughs> these are the Saturday night of injuries. Of an evening in the yeah, city. These are the evening. Saturday night injuries. Absolutely. So the Institute of Neurological Science in, in Glasgow, in the Southern General Hospital, what was the Southern General, now the Queen Elizabeth, were the world leaders, and it's the guys there, Graeme Teasdale and, and, and colleagues, that, that invented, Brian Jeanette, the Glasgow Coma Scale, which you say is quite rightly used, used the world over. So it's experience of of having lots of patients to look after and having the real quality and expertise that a, a specialist unit that that attracts. Uh, so the, 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 the patients and the expertise, and we've carried that on. So the, the concussion stuff that we're doing at the moment, the concussion guidelines, has been because in Scotland we're quite a small group so sports medicine doctors and people that are interested in concussion, there's only a dozen so dozen or so of us. So it's very easy to sit round a table and speak to your rugby, your shinty, your Sports Scotland colleagues and, and put this together. It's much harder in a, a bigger group. We don't have any egos in this. We're really trying to set out what's best. And the courses that were put together, Katie Stewart and myself at Hamden, Johnny with the Sport Promote course, these are just people who are interested in, in you know, it sounds a wee bit twee, but trying to look after mm -hmm. the players as, as best we can. Well, have you ever played with concussion? Did you ever get a head knock and, and play where you thought you'd concussion? No, I, I don't think I did. I don't think I did. But what I find fascinating is my dad used to say it, uh, um, was, you know, when, when when things are being discussed a lot on the telly, but, uh, but, you know, a lot, a lot of really, really top-heavy health stuff, Scotsmen are at the front of it. Mm -hmm. I hear Scotsmen, I hear so well how John's speaking here. It's incredible how he knows his stuff and just, you know, straight off, straight off the tongue. But um, 
is there any chance he has been really, really good at football? Because see, at the end of the day, you've been a part of the Scotland set-up for all the years. Have you ever thought there's maybe a, jo- a Jonah in the camp being there all the years? Either that, John, or can you, you come up with some way? kind of potion so that you can give people? There must be something that you can do, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 you know to, to raise the awareness and go, right, there's something right, everything's all right medically, but what do we need to do to get a winning team? Can you answer that I think you'll not be surprised to know that you're not the first person. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in my quieter moments, when I get a wee minute or two, I think about it myself. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned my predecessor, the late Professor Stuart Hillis, who, who really was in the absolute forefront of sports medicine, not just in Scotland and in Europe, but in the world. He was the ex-Clyde Bank doctor initially. And, you know, in the 1970s, he would be down there looking at looking after players. He would be looking after players who were injured. But he had an interest in physiology as well. So he would be mapping with his pencil and a wee picture of the pitch distances that people ran long before we ever thought that we'd have GPS vests and doing that. Yes. And Stuart preceded me, as I said, in many things. He's a professor of sports medicine at the University of Glasgow and I've inherited some of his jobs there. Uh, he was UEFA vice chairman uh, for 20 years. So he was really at the forefront sports medicine as I say right across Europe and recognised by FIFA as well so we've had really good people and and you know my colleagues and, and to a certain extent myself we've, we've carried on that, that interest uh, over the years John I'm going to ask you a question which is fairly loaded but it has to be asked and that is the players help themselves by the amount of feigning injury and especially head injuries these days I would say in, in my experience with Scottish players that that's never been an issue, both at international level and, and, and club level. But you would admit that generally in the game, you now see players going down and they hold their head. Uh, and that for you isn't good at the side of the park, obviously, because you've got to consider whether they've got a head injury. And what happens when you get on there and they think, you know, it's all right, don't worry, I've been at it. You know, that kind of, it doesn't help the cause, does it? It doesn't, but to be honest, it, it's it's a very, very, very rare thing. I think players in, in Scotland are honest, and particularly at international level. Mm. It, you know, it's harder to get people off the pitch than to, to, to leave them on. Uh, it, I, I, to me, that's not really been a problem. I, I wouldn't like to speak for other teams. And, you know, if we look back to some of the World Cups, uh, particularly the World Cup in Brazil, where there was two incidents where players were remonstrating with the doctor and eventually went back onto the pitch against medical advice and that was one of the triggers that uh, was a Uruguayan player against England just forget his name temporarily uh, that was one of the big triggers for football authorities to start to look at head injuries seriously again mm. yeah. let's let's look at the because the, there are positives with this it's not all gloom and doom if you're an ex-footballer in terms of your ongoing welfare uh, you said there are specific areas where you found that footballers fared far better than the genu- the, the general population uh, talk us through them again and, and is it just purely the amount of physical exercise they do that strengthens things like lungs and such like that make them less vulnerable to things like lung cancer so we know in general, and we've known for the last 30, in fact longer than that, that the landmark study of interest was done in the old days when we had bus conductors. And the first study was done by a guy called Morris, and he looked at heart disease in bus drivers versus conductors, and he found the conductors had a lower incidence of heart disease and postulated that because they were up and down the stairs and the drivers were driving all day, 
that that was the reason and, and there's a lot of truth in that. And that was the early studies that showed exercise. We now know that physical activity dramatically, and when I say dramatically, we're talking 30-40% reduction. If we developed a drug tomorrow that would reduce your chance of having heart disease or a stroke, that would reduce it by 30 or 40%, we'd be millionaires. But we've got that drug and it's physical activity. So we know that physical activity, and the good news is it doesn't have to be out jogging. The recommendations at the moment are 30 minutes of physical activity on five or more days of the week. And that's physical activity that means walking to the shops rather than jumping in a taxi. It means if you're getting the bus home from work, jumping off the bus a stop or two early and walking home. It doesn't mean you have to join a gym. It doesn't mean you have to spend a fortune on, on equipment and, and go and do things. So we've known that, for example, heart disease, stroke, diabetes and a big chunk of cancers, breast cancer, bowel cancer, prostate cancer and lung cancer, reduced incidence by physical activity. So the footballers are really a reflection of that norm in society that we know physical activity is beneficial because obviously that cohort of footballers were more active. And, you know, Hughes Silth-like figure is a demonstration of the fact that when you stop playing football... In general, people retain a healthier lifestyle than if they'd never played football before. So the good habits you pick up as a footballer. Footballers, a few footballers smoke. They're, they're, we might say that, that, that footballers drink a lot, but compared to the general population, they don't. They drink less. They're, they eat a healthier diet, particularly modern-day footballers. And the majority of them will carry these good habits on to their, to their later life. And remember, the study looked at death. So it looked at players who had retired playing 30, 40 years uh, from when they played. So that lifelong benefit of physical activity is reflected in, in what we found in the study. I can feel a telegram coming. <laughs> I can feel a telegram coming. <laughs> if, you, if you had better medical care at Rangers when you were playing then. Right? <laughs> and then there was, another, there was another doctor as well. The physio at the time was uh, Bob Finlay. Remember Bob, Bob Finlay, yeah. absolutely. I remember Bob well. Bob was and, in, because uh, I think to, he went in behind Tommy Craig. He did. Old school. Tommy was old school. He did. Uh, and, and then obviously we get the doctor in for, for school from uh, the hospital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bob and uh, Bob, I, I've not seen Bob for a wee while, but uh, I've kept in touch when we went to Queen's Park after he left uh, uh, Rangers. Rangers. Uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> when Graeme Soonis came in, he changed the medical system. It's a bad word. You, you don't mention that in here, that name, John. Soonis is a bad name. No, there's only one name you don't mention in this studio when I'm here. <laughs> you know what? You know what I'm fascinated, fascinated as well, Bill, is we talk about players adjusting. To uh, sorry, managers adjusting from you know where we get shouted at, we get balled at, we get slapped at, you know we get everything and and managers like say the Dick Campbells of this world and Brian Rice we had just on has had to adjust to the modern day footballer. Now the same applies, you know, with John where he's seen it, you know, at the sharp end all these years ago and how it's moved on so much. Well, let me ask you a question because that's a good point, but. Whereas social um, acceptance changed things mm -hmm. with managers and political correctness came in and stuff like that. So kind of social norms were, were moved and that's what changed the management side of things. Has it worked the other way, John, where the medical side of things have actually swayed the way that things are done now with sports science, with nutritionalists, with things like that. Has it been the development and the knowledge and the advance in that knowledge in terms of welfare that's that's driven that rather than social norms or social acceptances? 
I'll tell you a wee funny story. Alex Smith, who you'll know, one of the, the longest-serving managers, emigrated to Australia a, a year or so back. I was at Clyde for 20 years, and Alec was my manager during that and, and with youth teams. And he, he would say to me one day, he'd say, Doc, he said, see, 20 years ago, and somebody had a medial ligament injury to their knee. He said, how long were they out for? And I would say, well, if it's not too bad, maybe two to four weeks, and if it's a wee bit worse, maybe four to six, and if it's a wee bit more severe, maybe six, eight, even 12 weeks. I said, ah, OK, he says, uh, see, with all your modern scanning and all your treatments and all your medicals and all your doctors, how long are you out with, with a medial ligament? And I'd say, well, Alec, if it's a mild one, maybe two to four weeks, if it's a wee bit worse, four to six weeks, if it's a bad one, six or eight or 12. Now, I'm kind of talking against myself here, but he was right to a certain extent in that tissues need time to heal. So there's not much we can do to massively increase that. But what mm -hmm. we can do is we can maintain that player's fitness. So without, you know, Henrik Larsson was one of the first people in our, in our pool when he broke his leg playing against Neon. Celtic didn't have a pool at that time and he came in and used the pool at Hamden. And people said, oh, Henrik's a great healer. One of the reasons that Henrik did so well, I'm not breaking any confidences, is that as soon as Henrik, Bill Leach, the surgeon, put a nail inside his leg, so he had no stooky, he had no plaster on, so as soon as that wound had healed, Henrik was in the pool maintaining his muscle strength, maintaining his cardiovascular fitness. So it meant as soon as he could bear weight, he could then run. He didn't have to spend a pre-season, for example, getting fit again. Mm -hmm. David Beckham, with his metatarsal fracture, got back playing in the in the World Cup quicker than you would expect. But that's because the people that were looking after him were able to maintain his fitness during that period of that period of time. We're better now in the sense that we've got, you know, things like MRI scanning have, have changed our injury management, but they've not changed the rate of healing. They don't heal any better. It just gives us better information. And that two to four weeks or four to six or six to eight, we can have a better idea with an MRI scan than we might do just examining them clinically. But at the end of the day, it's good people, it's good processes, and it's better welfare for those individuals. You know, managers in the past, the famous Bill Shankly story at, at Liverpool was that they didn't have a physio. They went into town, into Liverpool city centre and got treated there. So they were separate from the rest of the players. So there was a incentive for the players to get back in. Nowadays, what we do is we integrate injured players. So instead of saying to them, come back in the afternoon when the first team players are away and work in the gym, these players are working in the gym side by side the rest of their players. So psychologically, they still feel part of that rather than feeling isolated and either they have to come back early or one of the other big interests we have is in mental health and football at Hamden. We, we run a programme called Support Within Sport, which provides no-cost mental health support for all professional footballers in Scotland, male, female, and we even include the coaches and the managers and the referees, and that provides them instant access to mental health support services. Why are the SFA not banging that drum louder? Because we speak about mental health on this programme on a regular basis and in depth, and one of the criticisms that I hear are... The, the the PFA don't do enough and that the powers that be don't do enough generally. And to hear this now, John, and this is obviously not your domain, but to hear this now, I find quite astonishing because I, I've sat through the amount of criticism the SFA have had. Uh, and one of the things that I think the SFA are particularly bad at, and this is only a personal opinion, is that the good bits of it, and there are plenty of them, they just don't fly the flag high enough or bang the drum loud enough. 
So maybe I am to blame because I'm I'm partly run the programme with colleagues. So three years ago we got some money from UEFA and my colleague Dr Katie Stewart I mentioned before did a survey and we asked every single professional footballer in Scotland through the PFA, so through Fraser Stewart and Michelle Evans particularly and we surveyed every player and they did it at, at club visits and we got a, a great response rate and 64% of the players said that they or a close colleague had had an issue with their mental health. So a wee bit like the study we've just done, that confirmed what anecdotally people felt. We also asked them what they felt were the, the people they would like to go and see, and it was very much the club medical staff, which was really good. So a wee bit surprisingly, the club manager and the coach, they felt comfortable. Their family and their GP, and uh, within the club, it was really looking at the, the club medical staff, and they were looking at a one-to-one -one type approach. And the last wee bit of it is we asked and we looked at some of the triggers and the triggers were things like social isolation, so foreign players playing in Scotland or players playing in the central belt with families in the north in Scotland or vice versa. Players who were injured, a wee bit like that isolation I spoke about a minute ago. Young players coming to the end of their uh, stage where they're going to get a full-time contract or not, or older players coming to the last year or two of their contract. So you won't be surprised at any of these, these no. triggers. Mm -hmm. So what we then said was, a wee bit like now, we've got a problem. How can we, uh, how can we get, uh, help that problem? So the group that we work with, the support group, is a group of sports medicine doctors, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists. The PFA are part of our group. But it's a confidential service, and the medical part of that is, is separate from the wider group. We've got some finance that we can pay for. So it means for the players, the coaches, the managers, it's, it doesn't cost them. And they can get access to a phone line where they can speak pretty much 24 hours a day, uh, to one of the sports medicine doctors, experienced doctors, and he or she will then triage that player and they can see a clinical psychologist within 24, 48 hours if that's deemed as being the appropriate. Now, within the NHS, you'll wait 6, 9, 12, 15 months to get access to clinical psychology. So maybe it's my fault for not putting that out enough. Well, mate, let, me, let me ask you a question because it may not be your fault. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not backtracking on what I said because I still believe. And I'll tell you that we've had numerous charities and we did a two-hour special a couple of weeks ago with Back On Side uh, who have, have kind of set up as a charity. And, and after that, they had 27 people, uh, a large number of them players, contacting them to talk about their mental welfare. But let me ask you, you see when you did the thing around the clubs and you were asking players specifically these questions... Was that, again, anonymous? Yes, it was. This is part of the problem for me. When people have to go public and they feel that they then become known, that's when it kind of goes back into the shadows for them. I, I can accept that, but what I would say is our programme is absolutely confidential. Now, with respect to the PFA who are our partner in that, they don't know the players that are coming forward. In fact, Katie Stewart is really the only person that holds that information. So the clinical psychologists or the sports medicine doctors or the psychiatrists, we see these individual patients, but it's absolutely 100% confidential. There is no feedback to the player's partner, to their manager, to their coach, to their chairman, to their agent, to their GP. I still feel work. that, not, I'm not saying no, no. this is with the SFA, I feel in general, this is the fear that players have that this breaks and goes public. Yeah. Uh, greatly now and it's a huge credit to the players who have that have come forward and, and, and said publicly 
I've suffered, this is how I've suffered, that more and more players are starting to get away from that stigmatisation of if it goes public. Um, but it, it's still one of those things which lives in the shadows. You'll know that better than yeah. me. Uh, and there's got to be a way of pushing that button and releasing that trigger where being in the shadows or being out in the spotlight even is better than being in the shadows. Well, I c can I tell you in the last two and a half years since we started the programme, and we don't like to, to make these figures public, but we've had just under 200 players have come through. That doesn't surprise me in any way, shape or form. Now, not one current of these players, players, John. Current players. Yeah, current and recently retired. We right. have a, you know, we we try. We're all we're all caring individuals. I'd like to think so. We we don't make a cut off if somebody's recently retired. Then we we let them through part of the program. They can have as much treatment, as many sessions as they as they want. The key for us is almost two hundred players, and and not one of those players has ever been identified by us. Some of the players have come forward and said that they've had support through the Support Within Sport programme and we're grateful for them for, for advertising the service but not once has that confidentiality been broken and that's not public confidentiality that's confidentiality to wife, partner, uh, manager, coach John, let me, let me ask you a question and I, I hope I know the answer to it but I'll ask it anyway do you work with any other specific charities that are involved in mental health in helping footballers specifically? Um, and if so, would you be prepared to work with even more of them? If not, why not? Absolutely, 100%. So the Chris Mitchell Foundation has been on the go, unfortunately, since Christopher tragically yeah. completed suicide. So we've had discussions over the last couple of years with, with Philip and Laura and the, and the foundation. Uh, we're in a good place with them. I would hope they would agree at the moment where we are able to provide... We're able to provide the hands-on support, so we're able to provide the experts, whether that's psychologists, psychiatry or whatever. You mentioned Back On Side. Uh, we become aware of the work that Libby's done in Back On Side mm -hmm. over recent months. Libby's been in the clinic, and I hope she won't mind me saying that she's had conversations with Katie and ourselves, and without breaking any confidences, I think we're confident that, that we can work with anyone because our prime aim is to provide that support for the players, coaches, managers in that group. We don't care where that comes from. It can come from a worried partner. It can come from a manager. There are managers in Scotland that have referred us double figures of, of numbers of their players that they're concerned about their mental health. Okay. We John, don't care where that referral I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to stop you. I wish I didn't because I could go on forever. Uh, thank you again for coming in and explaining the study and going wider with it. Back tomorrow. Love music. Live sport. Talking Football with Bill Young and Hugh Burns on Rock Sport Radio.